We live in a generation in which truth is discarded, swept under the carpet, and the reason why this happens is so that lies, or at least man's thinking, can come to the surface and be believed and embraced. And so consequently, Europe has gone through something so that people would consider Europe to be a post-Christian nation. It's, it's as if they've said, we've had our time with Christianity. We are now moving on, moving past all of these superstitions. I mean, that's what they call the miracles of the Bible, superstitions. And now we are intellectual and we are embracing the truth, which, by the way, you have your truth over there and you have your truth and I have my truth. And we all have different truths. And so consequently, we are not to judge one another. We are to be tolerant of one And so these are, these are very faddish type of words or phrases that are used in our day. America, however, has always been the daughter of, of Europe. Regardless of whether we like that idea or not, I know we separated from England over 200 years ago, but the truth is we follow in the footsteps of Europe. And America truly is in many ways quickly becoming a socialist state and a post-Christian nation. And we are following in that same faddish direction that Europe has, and we're embracing all of these, and what I'm going to call them is very plainly lies. We need to come back to the truth. But when we talk about truth, what is the truth? This is the question Pilate asked Jesus. Well, what is truth? But he asked it as if it was there was no answer to it, a rhetorical question. You know, what is truth? But Jesus declared that he was the truth. When we look through the Bible, Old Testament and New, it all points to Jesus. He is the truth. All truth is eventually founded in him because he created all all things. So when I read my Bible, I must conclude then if this is the word of God, then it will be consistent. There's not going to be any contradictions. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at that idea of contradictions. And are there any contradictions in the Bible? How do we respond to skeptics when they say here or here is a contradiction? These types of things, I'm hoping, not only bolster our faith, but as you take good notes, that you're going to be able to share with your friends and say, hey, you want to know truth. You want something that's solid to stand on and build your life on and build your family on. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the Gospels. Let me tell you about the Word of God, the Bible. But I, I know a couple of uh, years ago, for the first time, I watched a movie and realized that it was based on a book called Holes. Now, in this book, Holes... There is a young man who's the focus of the book, and I, I can't even remember what he did that was wrong, but he is now being taken to this detention center. It's a, it's a work camp is what it really is. And at this camp, every day, all of these uh, detainees, those who are in this work camp, young kids, they have to build one hole. I think it's like six feet wide, six feet deep, something like this. Um, but it has to be you know, six feet wide and you know, certain dimensions. Every day, you have to build a hole. And so, you know, he thought that was kind of weird. Well, as the story unfolds and he's building his hole and he's really getting good at this, he discovers that there are some rumors about that place from years and years ago that it didn't always used to be this desert waste, which, by the way, you could never escape because it's just so vast and you would just die out there. It's so hot and vast, but this used to be a lake. And so there were just some rumors and little stories that have 
filtered around the, the, you know, the work camp. And then towards the end of the story, you begin to see how these two stories enmesh with one another. And you realize, oh my goodness, there is so much more truth underneath this than what we realize. Let me just tell you. See, when I was a kid, I read through the Gospels, and I kind of, or even the Old Testament, oh, th- those are nice stories. But I had a tendency to separate the stories of the Bible from real history. At least that's what I called it, real history. As if there's a difference between secular history and biblical history. But then I realized, once I had given my heart to Christ, no, the things that I'm reading about in the Bible actually took place in real life history. As we read through the Gospels, and I want you to turn to Luke 24, and then we're just going to read a short passage, or we're going to go to Acts 22, excuse me, Acts 2. We're going to need to ask this question, how do we know that what Luke wrote is historically reliable? Because if it's historically reliable, if the facts check out, my goodness, what are the implications then for how we should be living today? And if the world grasps this truth about truth, that the Bible actually is reliable, it will thoroughly impact them and this nation and every nation. And I'm believing and praying, just like Isaiah 2 talks about, that all nations will stream to the holy mountain of God, which is a picture in Isaiah of the kingdom of God. That's my heart. Before Jesus comes back, that, God, I'm praying, bring these nations in like a flood into your kingdom. And I'm going to tell you this, that is only going to happen when they realize, like we're going to talk about today, that what we're about to read truly happened. And step back and then consider, what are the implications for me and my family? So you're there with me in, <coughs> excuse me, in at, excuse me, Luke chapter 24. Jesus has died on the cross. He has reportedly been raised from the dead, and now, as the apostles and some others are gathered in this supper room, he appears to them. And they're just, they're like kind of freaking out. Whoa. You know, what we've heard from Peter and what we've heard from these two guys on the road to Emmaus and so on and so this is true. The women told us that his tomb was empty. Hello, here he is. And Jesus, he, he says to them, this is what I, verse 44, I, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Church, that is exactly what we need in our day. However, however God does that for minds to be opened, and I know for some Part of this journey of God opening our minds is for us to realize this really happened. This that's recorded is truly historically reliable. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He he told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So turn with me to Luke chapter 2. That's where the Holy Spirit actually is poured out. But my focus today is not going to so much be on 
the fact that the Holy Spirit was poured out, but rather the truth that we discover in Peter's sermon that day, in which 3,000 souls were saved. So I'm just going to read a little bit of the beginning and the end. So so follow me as I'm reading from Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter quotes from Joel 2. He says then, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible, underline that word, impossible, for death to keep its hold on him. Then skip over, if you would, to verse 33. Because he quotes from Psalm um, uh, 16 about the Holy One rising from the dead, it's not David, it is Jesus the Messiah, and, this, and he, he kind of wraps up this sermon, starting with verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he, referring to Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies. And I want you to underline that word enemies. We're going to come back to it. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's a very significant sentence we're going to need to unwrap. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Underline that phrase if you would. Cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children. Underline that as well. This is a promise. It's for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 3,000 souls were saved that day. They were so impacted, they immediately, it says in verse 42, devoted themselves. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. They devoted themselves to this. Something amazing and profound happened to them. I want to see that profound impact of the gospel that Peter preached impact this generation. You know, when, G, when Paul, excuse me, when Peter is preaching and he's talking about the empty tomb and he begins to then preach the resurrection, let's understand all of them could have said, yeah, hang on just a minute, Peter, give us about a 10-minute coffee break and we're going to go down to this so-called tomb of Jesus and see if it really is empty. How easy it would have been then to disprove this resurrection that Peter was preaching on. But guess what, church? They had already done that. And it was empty. And this resurrection was be this rumor, just like the rumors of in that book holes, these rumors about Jesus rising from the dead began coming together and making sense. And it was like, 
whoa, what are the implications of this? Turn back then, if you would, to Luke 24. And there, Jesus challenges them. And he, he, he actually scolds them. And he says, Did you, didn't you realize that the Messiah had to rise from the dead? He had to. He had to die. He had to rise from the dead in order to fulfill Scripture. What does he mean by the, in order to fill the scripture, in order to fulfill what, what Luke is writing about? No. What Moses wrote about, what the prophets wrote about, what the psalmists wrote about, all of which were written down probably between 700 and 1,000 years before Christ. We call these messianic prophecies. Jesus then shares these scriptures with them and it impacts them. Wow. This, this was actually foretold. How did we not see this? It begins to make complete sense now. The pieces of the puzzle begin to come together for them. And their eyes are opened. Number one, it says that Jesus would be a Nazarene. Archaeology, if you weren't aware, is barely over 200 years old, when so-called scholars began to read through the Bible, they came across things like the Hittites. And they said, well, there's, there's no Hittite empire, nation, anywhere in the world that has ever lived, so the Bible must be wrong. Julius Wellhausen, who was a very liberal scholar, did not believe the truths that are found in the Bible. I'm not even sure why he was teaching the Bible, but he was. And you know that's always amazed me. You know what? If you don't believe it, then why are you teaching it? Please. But you know, he, he's teaching it in the seminaries and so on. And he, he made this declaration. He, he developed what, what was commonly called the documentary hypothesis that I'm not going to get into, J-E-D-P. And he made this declaration just like, well, the Hittites never lived. That, you know, Abraham in Genesis 14 apparently came across them, but obviously, no, they, they didn't. And on and on went these accusations, and we're going to get to some of them concerning the New Testament. That they couldn't be true. That there's, there's no foundation. Well, it didn't take long before this new science called archaeology discovered that not only were the Hittites a nation, but that this contract that they made, or this um, covenant, if you will, that they made with Egypt, they, the, that Egypt was basically a vassal to the Hittite Empire. That's how big they were. That's how powerful they were. Julius Wellhausen and the liberals ate their words with that one. But here's what we discovered. It happens over and over. And so we come across this idea of Nazareth, and, and people made the accusation, there is no town that has ever existed in Israel called Nazareth. Never found it. It supposedly was on a bluff. That's what Luke 4 tells us. That it was a small town, and it's actually where Jesus was raised. So, lo and behold, it didn't take long for archaeology to discover some manuscripts that talk about Nazareth. Jesus 
would be a Nazarene. He would be someone born in Nazareth he, or, or raised in Nazareth. That he would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. You know, when the scholars doubt these prophecies, that one of the ways they do that, casting doubt on it, is that, you know what, Jesus just tried to fulfill them. Jesus has tried to fulfill them. Can I ask you, how many of you were born in Orlando, Florida? Any of you born in Orlando, Florida? Um, did you guys plan that? Plan it well? Okay, great. Good job. It happened. Good for you. No, we never know where we're going to born, right? You have no control over it. Jesus didn't have control over being born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. But prophecy said, Mark, Micah 5, 2, that he would be. And guess what? He was. That he would do miracles. Now, the Talmud, which is a Jewish manuscript, basically the traditions of the elders um, over centuries, it was oral in about 200 AD, it was actually written down, the Babylonian Talmud. And if you read through that, Jesus' name is mentioned. Here's how they treated Jesus' miracles. I, mean, I don't know about you. Skeptics today, you know, their response is, miracles can't happen, therefore Jesus did not do miracles. That's not how Jesus' enemies, who opposed him, writing the Talmud, saw him. They call him a sorcerer. A sorcerer is someone who does miracles, but he doesn't do it by the power of God, but he does it by the power of the devil. That's their best explanation to wipe away these, this testimony of Jesus' miracles. They don't deny the miracles. Why? Because there was too much corroborated testimony that he actually did these miracles. So he had to have done them through demonic influences. That he would be crucified with criminals, Isaiah 53 says. Try managing that one yourself, that you would die in a certain way and that the company with you would be of a certain nature, criminals. And yet that's exactly what happened. Not only would he be, would he be killed between or in the midst of criminals, but that he would actually, Isaiah 53 says, be buried among the rich. You have no control over where you're buried unless you plan it. And Jesus did not have some will. He didn't sit down with some company and say, okay, when I die, here's what you're going to do. No, Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. They say that the probability of just eight of these prophecies, and Peter Stoner, who's one of those geeky, number-crunching Prob probability scientists, he crunched the numbers with just eight prophecies that Jesus had absolutely no control over where he was born and similar ones that I chose here. He said it would be, and I can't remember the exact statistic, but it would be similar to the entire state of Texas being filled about two feet high of silver dollars and only one of them having a an X marked on it, and then telling a blind man, go into the state of Texas and find that silver dollar, but you get only one chance. That's how, that's how much the probability would be. And so when, when we are encountered with these facts, they lead us to a certain conclusion. Maybe the Bible contains more truth than what I'm realizing. Maybe it's more supernatural than what I'm aware of. 
Well, as the story unfolds, and people throughout history have been reading the Gospels, and some of them believing it, others have been fighting against it, we realize that the Gospels, or, or liberals in the 1800s, which is the time of Julius Wellhausen and many other liberals, they began to say things like, well, the Gospels were written in the second century. And they, they, they talked about how Peter, a Jewish Christian, was branding Christianity, and Paul came along and he rebranded it, and how these two factions were arguing, and then the Gospels kind of settled the issue, but they weren't written until like 150 A.D. And so that was very commonly believed, and if the Bible, if the Gospels were written that long after the fact then legend had crept in. See, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. It, it, you know, he, he is, he, the tomb was empty. People really believed that he was um, a really great guy, so they venerated him. And then a story developed, we call a legend, that said, no, he actually rose from the dead. But the early church didn't believe that. So after a hundred and, what, 20 years or so, then the church believed it. And all of these stories had kind of morphed into this fabricated resurrection story. Is that true? Were the Gospels written that much later? I'm just going to tell you this. There are so few liberals, you could probably count them on one hand, today, living today, that would say that any of them were written in the second century. How did that happen? Let me just give you an example. When Jerusalem as a city was growing and its neighborhoods expanding into the uh, Mount Olive area, they began excavating, you know, lay, leveling some of that mountain to be, make room for the neighbor, neighborhoods of Jerusalem as it was growing. What, what happened, though, is that they broke into some family graves and they discovered what, is, what are called ossuaries. An ossuary is a stone... Um, it, it's a stone coffin for a person's bones. It would be about one foot wide and two feet long, deep with a lid, a stone lid. And what would happen is after your father died or your relative died, about a year later, after it had completely decayed, they would gather the bones and put it in an ossuary. They would seal it and then put it into a sealed off family tomb. And they broke into some of these. They discovered some of the uh, ossuaries. And some of them, they realized, were actually, because they, did the, they tested these, and what they call um, the, the, uh, the oxidation, and they, they tested them and realized it was about 40 AD. Now, when you lift the lid, you, they discovered on one of them three crosses, they, 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 um, they tested the oxidation in the, the carvings and realized that the carvings were made at about the same time the ossuary was made. Well, what's the significance of this? Now, follow me. Can I ask you, why would someone around 45 AD say, when mom or dad has passed away, they're now putting their bones in an ossuary, why would they inscribe a cross, not just a cross, but three crosses on the underside of them. Can I ask you, if you had a close relative who've, who's passed away recently, did you engrave how they died 
on the coffin? Let, let's say they, God forbid, but they died from COVID. I mean, did you put a little COVID molecule on the, on the uh, coffin? Or, or, or how about someone back in the day in which there was a war and, and they were killed on the battlefield with a sword? On the, on, on the underside of the coffin lid, do they put a sword? But that's what they did here with the ossuaries. They put a cross. That was perhaps the most cruel way of torture to kill someone known in the Roman Empire. Why would they do this? Unless the early church viewed the cross, an empty cross, by the way, as a symbol of hope. And why would they do this? Because church, listen, Jesus died on a cross and he rose from the dead. So to put a cross on the underside of an ossuary wasn't just simply, well, this is how he died. No, this is a symbol of hope. Hope. Why? Because they truly believed Jesus had been raised from the dead. It didn't take 120 years into the second century for the church to believe that. They believed it right away. Why? Because they were so thoroughly impacted by this, many of them, up to 500 at one time, saw Jesus alive. So thoroughly impacted were the apostles by this, because all of them saw Jesus' resurrected body. They touched him, they even say, that they were willing to die for that story, that testimony about Jesus being raised from the dead. Can I tell you, if what they wrote was fabricated, that they told everyone that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that's the crooks of the gospel message. Everything rises and falls on Jesus' resurrection. But if it never happened, and the apostles were merely lying, why would they be willing to die for that? Let me just tell you this. No one is willing to die for something that they know is a lie. Now, they're willing to die for things that they are told is true, but aren't. Many people in religious groups are willing to die and be martyred for what they've been told is true. But no one's willing to die for what they know to be a lie. No one is. And yet, that's the testimony of the early church. These men declaring, I saw him alive, willing to die now for that. How about Paul? Paul's testimony, even liberals would accept this, that Paul was a, uh, an antagonist of Christianity, that he truly did, according to what he writes, that he truly did persecute the church. That if you were a, if you were a Jew and became a follower of Jesus, that his goal was to track you down, put you before the, ma the, uh, the Jewish magistrates for you to be condemned. And Jesus realized that the blood of many was on his hands because of this. So how does someone who is so zealous for what he believed that Jesus was not the Messiah, but simply a cult leader, how does that man change the way he did? To the point where he endured so much persecution to proclaim what? The resurrection of Jesus. What? Why? Why was there such a profound change in this man's life? He says because he saw the resurrected Christ and that Jesus spoke to him. Spoke to him. 
and his life was forever changed. <laughs> when we read through the Gospels, many say, well, you know what, they are legend. C.S. Lewis has something to say about that. He says, you know what, when, because C.S. Lewis, if you know who he is, um, professor at what, Cambridge, was it? And, and he, was a prof- he, he taught linguistics. He taught languages. He taught, as you read through certain genres, this genre is legend. This is not. He was an expert on these things. When he was converted from atheism to Christianity with the help of J.R.R. Tolkien, he came to the realization the Gospels do not read like legend. They, do, they, don't, they don't come across that way. You see, when someone fabricates a story or the story kind of morphs into more than what it really is that we'll call a legend. See, a myth is something that's just fabricated right away. It's false right away. A legend is rooted in truth and it develops and morphs and gets embellished and becomes something very different than what it was for, than the way it was first taught. That's a legend. This is what C.S. Lewis said, the gospels are anything but legend. See, in a legend, you write it in a way to kind of sell it. You realize that it's embellished, but this is what's been passed on to you. And of course, you're going to twist it a little bit more to embellish it so that people will be like, wow, this is an amazing story. Jesus really bodily rose from the dead. Oh, my goodness. When you do that, a person writing a legend, you, his fingerprints are on it. You, you can see there's certain elements of it. For example... When you write a legend, you don't want to include incidental details, okay? You just don't do that. You only include what you think will sell the people on your story. That's how you write legends. Then why is it then the Gospels are filled with incidental details? In the last chapter of John, John tells us that they caught 153 fish. Why is that important to us, John? John also tells us that when he and his friend Peter ran to the tomb, that John got there ahead of that John got there ahead of Peter because he was younger, and I'm sure he was quicker. And you know, maybe because of uh, Peter getting married and his wife's good cooking, he gained a bit of weight. We don't know. Peter, John got there, but when John got there, it says he bent down to look into the tomb. How weird is that? But here's what we discover. That's not necessarily an incidental detail because they discovered that that's how tombs were actually made back then, especially those that were wealthy. They had a stone that would be rolled in front of this tomb, and you always had to duck down to enter it. We didn't know that until we discovered some, that if you're trying to sell a story... You don't want to talk about some embarrassing details about your leaders, like Peter denying the Lord three times. That's not going to sell people on his leadership, that he's, he kind of started the church. No, we want to paint him very nice and you know authoritative and godly and humble, and he wasn't, and he was so impetuous to the point where he denied Jesus three times to save his skin, and yet, in the last chapter of John, there's an encounter in which we read, Jesus has forgiven him. Not because he was worthy of it. Praise God, Peter did repent. And it says he went outside of the courtroom, courtyard of the high priest, and he wept bitterly. 
But that does not paint a pretty picture for the Apostle Peter. So why would you include that in the legend? Unless that's just the way it happened. Jesus' hard sayings. Jesus said things like, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Whoa. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. And he doesn't explain what he's talking about except simply to say you don't want to enter hell or you, would, you should rather enter hell maimed than to live life. Let me back up and say that. You don't want to enter... I'm going to get this right. Hang on one second. It is better to enter heaven maimed than to go to hell with eyes and hands intact. In other words, these things in your life that are tripping you up, get rid of them. Jesus is worth so much more than these inconveniences and these hardships in life. Choose me is what he is saying. But he doesn't elaborate on it. He kind of just lets it dangle. Yep, cut your right hand off. What? Pluck your right eye out. What? Hate your father and mother. The kids are in back. Yay! No! See, when you really look at that in the Hebrew, the, that, the, it's an Aramaism because they spoke Aramaic. In, in Jesus' day. And there's three ways, and you can see this in the Old Testament, three ways to understand this word hate, one of which is love less. Jacob loved Rachel, but hated Leah. In other words, he loved her less. He didn't have a grudge against her. He didn't hate her. It's just, that's an idiom. And when Jesus says, hate your father and mother, he means love them less. Love your brothers and sisters less than me, is what he's saying. But he doesn't explain all of that. And so, time and time again, we come across these hard sayings of Jesus, and the pen of the evangelist does not try to explain it, because that's what Jesus said. And he, you are left to just wrestle with that. That doesn't sell a story. Unless, that's just the way Jesus taught it. That's the way it happened. And so we encounter these types of things over and over. And as I say, C.S. Lewis, as he looked at all of this, and there's so many more, he said, nope, these gospels are anything but legend. The very fact that there were eyewitnesses to this, and I talked about the apostles, but why would the gospels all confirm that the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection were women? That doesn't sell the story, guys. Because women's testimony would not necessarily hold up in a court of law. Now, that, that's shameful for their culture. They didn't view women as very educated or intelligent. Of course, no husband would say that, right? The truth, though, is that women were looked down upon. But in this story, Jesus, of the greatest miracles, of, the, of, of that miracle that needed to be shared with everyone in the world, it was first given to women. Amen. That's right. Amen. But legends aren't written that way. And then the last thing I, I, I want to look at before we come back to our passage is that 
Luke was historically, Luke and Acts were historically accurate. People believed that Pilate was not, Pilate was a procurator, but not a prefect. And lo and behold, we find an engraving that says, sure enough, Pilate was a prefect of Judea. I'm going to read just a few of these very quickly to you. A guy by the name of Sir William Ramsey in the early 1900s, he was a liberal. He did not believe that the uh, scriptures were inspired of God. He believed there was tremendous inaccuracy. He believed, just like all the other liberals, that, they were, that the Gospels were written in the second century, not the first, and therefore plenty of legend had crept in, that Luke was far off base when he wrote his Gospel. So many things that were just plain old inaccurate. That, like Aeonia, was the language of Lystra. They thought Lystra was in a different province, and they discovered, no, it wasn't that the use of the term polytarchs, which they had not come across, was actually frequently used in Thessalonica, just the way Paul uses it when, when, just the way Luke uses it when Paul and his apostolic entourage visit and evangelize the Thessalonians. We actually see things like Asiarchs, polytarchs, and many other um, political titles that are given to statesmen in various cities, and we discovered they are specific to those cities. And William Ramsey came to this conclusion, Luke had to have been there in that time to have known that. When they take soundings uh, in, in Acts, 7, Acts 27, when the storm is driving them through the Mediterranean, the northeaster is like a hurricane, and the boat is about to crash, that they take soundings, the depths of, uh, of, the, uh, of the sea below them before they crash. And there is a certain Greek term that's used for those soundings. And they realize, they, they thought that that was inaccurate. That's not the term that was used. But they, they did, as, they, as Sir William Ramsey was doing his archaeological discoveries in Asia Minor and around, which is present-day Turkey, Lo and behold, they discovered that's the exact term that they used back then. Here's what he found, church. He found, and he says this, that Luke should be ranked as a major source for historical accuracy should we have any questions about Asia Minor during the first century. He is classified as one of the greatest historians, so specific. When you're reading your English Bible, many times you don't see the nuances and how specific Luke is, and yet he was, and it impacted people. So what, is, what's the, what are the implications of this? I want us to now look very quickly at the book of Acts, chapter 2, and I want us to see something. When the people heard Peter preaching, there was such a conviction of truth. It says that they were cut to the heart. So here is my question. What were they cut to the heart about? And I'm going to suggest that how they were cut to the heart is the very thing that this generation needs to have happen with them. This generation needs to be cut to the heart concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we realize that not only is this completely trustworthy and historically reliable, it has something to say about you in your fallen condition. Remember Romans 1, 
we look around us and we can see creation and the beauty of it, but something is broken and I am part of that brokenness. How does that get fixed? The gospel is the answer. We need to be cut to the heart. What were they cut to the heart about? Look at, look at what it says there. He quotes from a psalm, Psalm 110, and he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What are the enemies that he is talking about here? Well, the devil, sure. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, is very clear. It is death and sin. The devil's a formidable foe, don't get me wrong. People in this world can oppose us and persecute us, yet they can be enemies, but guess what? I was an enemy too, and Christ won me, but the last enemies that will be conquered will be sin and death. Sin and death. Sin is going to be conquered by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if you read Isaiah 53, it is the servant of the Lord. It is the Messiah that will be sacrificed for my sin. And this, my sin will be placed on him. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one is turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. It even talks about him being a guilt offering, a sin offering for us. Wow. The Messiah would defeat sin. But that the Messiah, the, uh, the, the, God, the Son of God, would rise from the dead and be considered the Lord of life. That he would not just, he's not just the one who created everything, but he one day will conquer death and he will be the Lord of all. And so that's why he says they were, excuse me, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's the Lord of life and therefore over death. He is the Christ who was the perfect sacrifice for our sin and therefore sin and death will be conquered. They were cut to the heart, number one, because hello, you were the ones that crucified this Jesus. And there's a conviction of that sin they're guilty. And before we go any further, church, let me just say this, that though they at their hands crucify Jesus, we are all guilty because Jesus had to die. He had to be that perfect sacrifice for every single one of you. So even though they felt guilty, they crucified him. Church, Jesus went to the cross because of my sin. I am just as guilty. But they weren't just feeling condemned because of their sin, but they recognized this is truth. They were cut to the heart because this is truth. So their question then, if this is true, guys, what do we do? That's the exact question that they ask. Brothers, what shall we do? Verse 37. Repent. And later he says, believe. Repent and believe. And I'm going to give this promise to you and to your children. It's not just going to change you, but it's going to change your children as well. And I've shared this with you, but my brother Ken was 68 years old. 
And as he was reading some books, he was so impacted by the authorship of the Bible that as he was seeing the evidence mount one on top of the other, he, be, he came to this overwhelming conclusion, this has to be true. And he was cut to the heart. He was convicted of his sin, but he was convicted, this is true. And at that moment, he, really, he stepped back and he told my sister, and, and, and it was somewhat vague as she related it to me, but she, she said, my, Ken, Mike, Ken said that he was now going to start following the God of his parents. I don't understand the complete implications of that. You know, over the next two or so months, it became very clear he was going to follow Jesus. He had been reading about this God and about this Jesus, and there was no other conclusion that, but that Jesus died for his sins, rose from the dead to give him life, and he was going to give himself to that, to him, as a person, as his God. That he was, he was going to stop pushing against this. And trust me, he had run so hard in the opposite direction that my parents had chosen and had trained us children to walk in. And he said, I'm done with this. I am going to follow Jesus. And this is a hope that's not just for us, but it says also for our children. I tell you what, that ministers a lot to me. This isn't just for me. It is for all five of my children. This is for all of your children. Moms and dads, this is for your children. This is going to change their life. This will transform them. And I can remember as, as different siblings of mine came to this realization and were cut to the heart and how God changed them. I've told you about the story of my brother Dan. My brother Dan, who's three, who was three years older than me, he was the one who led me to Christ, but my older sister, Jenny, she began, she'd made a decision probably five to ten years before I did, and I saw a change in her life. She was honestly a rebellious teenager, and around 17 or 18, I believe, she made this decision. She was going to follow Jesus. And she, I remember just sitting down to her, and I was curious. She would tell me these stories, miracles that God was doing. She was a part of the Jesus People movement, and they would meet in the basement of a Baptist church, about 300 of them. And the Spirit of God would, would be poured out upon them. People would be healed. And, and I, I was curious, and I visited these meetings on occasion. And I saw a change in my sister and in Chuck, who would become her husband. And I, that impacted me. That set me up so that when my brother actually spoke the truth about who Jesus is and the need for me to follow him, I was cut to the heart as well. See, church, this is true. When our generation comes to grips with this truth that Jesus truly is who he said he was in the Gospels and did exactly what these Gospels say that he did, when they get that, it will forever change their life, and it will change the lives of their children as well. Can you just stand with me right now? I want to close in prayer. I want us to cry out for our children. I want us to cry out for our neighbors who, who, who are so lost, but who desperately, as we do, need Jesus. I would like you right now, we're going to kill the lights, and, and just as the band comes up, we've got communion. As I close in prayer, that you would lift up some of these names of neighbors or relatives 
family members, that God would call them and pull them out of darkness into his light. Join with me. Father, I just thank you for the, the truth and the power of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you, Lord, not only for our own souls, that we would be hungry every day for that truth that brings life, but for our children as well, for our relatives, our neighbors, the person that we have been working with for over 10 years. We just pray for them, God. Call them. Spirit of God, go beyond the words that, and, and the actions that we have lived out before them that have pointed them to Jesus. And would you do a work that we can't? Would you call them out of darkness into your marvelous light? Would you rescue them? Would you cut them to the heart, oh God? Would they be confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ? And we just ask you, Father, as we're lifting up names before your throne this morning, call them, win them, God. Open their minds to see the truth of your word. And I ask God that in our day, we are going to see a move of your spirit, unprecedented, eclipsing the first and second great awakening in a way, Lord God, that we're going to see this nation truly follow after Jesus Christ. God, please move by your spirit in this generation and win it, God, to you. Nations might stream to your holy mountain. Mm. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God.